When I was early in my ministry as a young youth pastor in Chicago, uh, my wife and I actually led a mission trip to Guatemala to see one of our missionaries there and his family and to work with them. It was a phenomenal trip, just beautiful country, beautiful people, learned so much. But one day we took a trip to a city called Antigua in Guatemala, beautiful city, and, and there was this massive Catholic cathedral there. And if you've ever been in Latin America and seen a Catholic cathedral in Latin America, there, there is quite a rich culture that goes on in these cathedrals. And so we went through and, and we toured it. And not growing up Catholic, I, I grew up in a Protestant home. I, I'm not really as familiar with, with kind of some of the Catholic practices. And so there was a lot that was a bit unfamiliar to me. But they had these statues of saints. And, and I was aware of that and go along and you see, you kind of read the plaques, who they were and why they pray to them. And, and we're going along and then we get to one of these alcoves with a saint and it is a skeleton dressed up. And something within my soul, within my spirit was just like, whoa, what is going on here? We got outside was rude to talk about these things inside. There were people worshiping there. We got outside and the missionary explained, that is the saint of the dead. I don't know much about the Catholic church, but I'm kind of going through what I know and I'm like, I don't remember a Catholic saint that is a skeleton (laughs) representing the dead. And he explained here in Guatemala, the traditional indigenous people, they they celebrate the day of the dead. And it's a time to honor their ancestors and ask for their ancestral help. And so this was a mixing of the Catholic Church religion and the Mayan religion coming together in this cathedral with this Catholic saint of the dead. This is known as syncretism. Syncretism is the mixing of one belief with another so that both end up being changed. I can imagine a Catholic missionary coming in and sharing the gospel with people, and they say, well, this is what we believe, and maybe, maybe in his mind he's thinking, well, that's kind of like what we believe, but we do it this way, and you can see how those things can get mixed unintentionally. Syncretism happens another way, though can imagine over time, people in the church, they want to get the culture involved. They want to bring people into church. Hey, they're worshiping this. We worship this. How about let's bring it into the church? And now those people will want to come to church. Syncretism is not just something that happens with missionaries in third world countries. It happens in modern societies, modern churches. It happens to large degrees, even in our country today, even in the modern evangelical Protestant churches. We take our beliefs and the beliefs of our culture, sometimes without even realizing it, and we mix the two together and we come up with something new. And I want to talk today about how the New Testament letters portray the relationship between Christians, the church, and the outside world. What is our relationship with the world supposed to look like? 
How do we see this relationship through the lens of Jesus Christ? We're going through this focal point sermon series. We started in Genesis, and the idea is get the big picture of Scripture. So we've been walking through some of the main storylines of Scripture to see these trends because it's easy to pick up Scripture or hear sermons or Bible studies and kind of get at this picture that Scripture is just a bunch of kind of loose-leaf stories, and you just flip to the one you want. What I want us to understand is it is one story, the story of God's purpose and his work in the world through people just like us. And so we've talked about the Gospels, we got to the the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus, and now we're in the epistles or the letters of the New Testament. I'm trying to go over some main themes that really stick out to me in these letters. And what I see is that the authors of the letters of the New Testament, Paul, James, Peter, John, uh, they're, they're looking at these churches and what they're struggling with, and they're writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're writing God's word to the people about things they need to know. And one of the big things they need to know is what's spo- what it's supposed to look like to be a Christian in their world. And they struggle just as we still do today. And so we're going to look at how is Jesus the focal point? How is he the lens through which we are to look at this relationship that we have with the outside world? Turn with me to John chapter 17. Yes, I know that's not one of the New Testament epistles. It's okay. Stick with me. Because I really think this is the best starting point to understand where the rest of the New Testament goes. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays for all believers. The situation is that it's the night that Jesus will be arrested. You might know it as the upper room. He's gathering together, sharing a last meal with his disciples. Seems to be some sort of Passover meal. And and he's sharing that. And then they're going to go out from there and go to the garden and pray some more. And there he will be arrested. He'll be tried illegally overnight. He'll be hung on the cross the next morning. And so here in the upper room, he is praying for his disciples that are gathered with them, but also looking through the course of history, through the eyes of deity that Jesus has, he's seeing all of us and he's praying for us still today. And so what is it that Jesus prayed for? One of the things he's going to pray for is our interaction with the world and what that is to look like. So in John 17, 13 through 19, let me read this. I'll put it up here for us. You can follow along. Jesus prays, I am coming to you now. He's talking to God the Father. He knows he's going to die on the cross and ascend up to heaven. Then he'll be resurrected. But he says, I know I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy with them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Now, Jesus is praying. He starts by praying for himself. He knows he's going to the cross. Then he turns his attention to the immediate disciples. 
Those are going to be struggling after he dies on the cross. They're going to struggle after his resurrection with accepting that. Then he knows he's going to send back up into heaven. And they're going to have to go out as missionaries in this world with the gospel. And guess what? They're going to struggle. And so he's praying for all of this. And if we go back to verses 13 and 14, one of the things that Jesus prays about is that, actually it's in verse 15, he's not praying that they would come out of the world, but that, but that he is sending them into the world. Now, the word world in John is very important because John uses this word in a very specific way. Throughout the Gospel of John, the word world is more than just the world out there. It is specifically linked with the sinful, rebellious world. Over and over and over again in John, the word world is associated with darkness and sin and rebellion. Which is really powerful when you come to John 3.16, for God so loved the world. How does God look at this world that is in rebellion against him? With love. Okay, And so this word then, as Jesus is thinking about it and using this, he's saying that he is sending them out into this world. He's not asking that they would be brought out of it, protected from, or taken away from it, rather. He's asking that they would be in the world, but not of the world. And maybe you've heard that phrase before, to be in the world, but not of the world. Christians love to debate over whether or not that's such a great phrase. I think it is. I think it's good, and I think it accurately sums up what Jesus is saying here. We are here in this world. We are not to be like the world. We're not to be of the world. We are not to be saturated with the world's ideas. We are to live differently. But look at what he says in verse 13. He wants them to have the full measure of joy. So as we walk through this teaching on our relationship with the world, understand that it's not so that you will be miserable. God wants you to miss out on everything great and just be miserable all the time. So live as a good Christian. No, it's the opposite. It's so that our joy will be complete. He also goes on to say that his disciples, verse 14, are not of this world any more than he is of this world. Jesus was born as a human child in a manger, but he existed long before that. As the second person of the deity, he came from heaven in the throne room of heaven and took on flesh. We're going to talk about that later and was born among us. He was not of this world and the disciples are something new now. They have been saved. They have been recreated, made new, risen to new life. And so he's saying, I want them to know this, but at the same time, they are going to live in this world. He says the world has hated them. So we talk about our relationship with the world. We have to understand there is an animosity there between the world's ways and the ways of God. There is a difference. And that difference often causes a struggle, a strife, and even hatred from the world toward those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. And yet he says, I have given them your word. In all of this struggle and all these interactions with the world, Jesus points out, I've given them your word. So that's our starting point. How do we interact with the world? We go to the word and we say, what does it say about how we are to do this thing? Now, if we go into verses 15 and 19, he says, verse 15, his plan is not to take them out of the world, but he does want them protected. And then he goes on in verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. 
And then he's saying, as Jesus was sent into the world, so he is sending them. And then verse 19, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. This word sanctified, we've talked about it in weeks past, means set apart for a purpose. Maybe you remember the story about one of our knives in our kitchen and how it was used to clean something disgusting off of one of my kids' shoes. It was, it was an example of what is not sanctification. The knife should have been set apart for a purpose, and instead it was used for something that it should never have been used for. That knife no longer resides in our house. You're fine to come over. But the point is, Jesus is saying, I came into this world, but I have been set apart for a purpose. And he's praying for the disciples and for all of us. Help them to understand. Yes, you live here, but you are set apart for a purpose. Some summary things here of what Jesus is talking about. There is a struggle as Christians. There must be a struggle. There will naturally be a struggle between us living out our faith in this world and the way the world thinks and the way the world acts. And Jesus is teaching that in this struggle, we need to hold on to the truth of God's word. And that's where we'll actually find true and lasting joy. It is a lie of sin that comes to Christians and say, gives into the way, give into the ways of the world, and then you'll be happy. No, following the ways of the Lord leads to true and lasting happiness. We are to be different from the world, which means we will be at times hated, but we are to understand that we are set apart for a purpose. Now, I want to look and take this prayer of Jesus and go into some of the letters of the New Testament. Because over and over again, what we see is that the people of the New Testament, the early church, just like us, they struggled with what Jesus was praying here. And so much of what the authors of the New Testament letters write are, in many ways, an application of what Jesus prayed here in this passage. And so they're coming back to that and saying, let's talk about how that looks in your city, in Colossae, in Philippi, in Rome. And I think today we can apply this and say, let's talk about what this looks like in Rochester, in the United States of America, in the year 2023. How do we apply these things to us? And the first thing is this phrase, being in but not of the world. We are here. We exist in this world. There are times that I think, God, when someone prays to receive Jesus Christ, when we are saved to new life, Can you just take us to heaven? It's hard here. It's the world is messed up. People look at us like we're foolish or we're stupid or we're ignorant because we're trying to live for Jesus Christ. And there's that feeling of like, could you just, just take me to heaven? Just pluck us out of this world. But over and over again in the New Testament, it says, no, God has a purpose in saving people and keeping us here for a reason. But as we are here, we need to remember, we are in the world, we are here, but there must be something different about us. The early church struggled with this in many ways. I I just want to give you two. One is, is the struggle between these new Christians, many of whom had been Jewish, and then those that were attending that had strong Jewish roots, but maybe didn't quite fully understand Christ. And there was this constant tension in the early church. Yeah, Christ is great. Worship Jesus. Praise Jesus. That's great. But you also need to do Old Testament Jewish rituals. 
And so a lot of the early churches were feeling this pressure, change the gospel to include these Jewish traditional practices. One letter that really takes this to task is the letter of Galatians. Paul writes to a church that's tempted to have this syncretism kind of blend the Jewish religion with the Christian religion. Now, don't get me wrong. The Christianity has huge roots in the Jewish religion. Book of Hebrews is all about that. But we can't change the gospel to keep people happy that are coming from that tradition. That's one example. Another example I think we can maybe identify a little bit more with uh, is the pressure to give in to their culture in their world, specifically the Romans. The Romans were the world superpower of the day. They dominated the region around Israel, uh, Europe, even a bit into northern Africa. They just dominated the world. Their culture had spread so quick. Some cities, if you were a Christian, even if you weren't a Christian, you would walk down the streets and there would be prostitutes everywhere hanging out in front of temples. You want to live a happy life? Come worship at the temple, which meant to join yourself with this prostitute. And it was rampant in cities like Corinth. We have two letters in the New Testament that are written to the Corinthian church. You are to be different. But there was so much struggle with their culture. Well, what if we just give in a little bit? I've also learned from history that that some of these cities in the Roman Empire, in order to either buy or especially to sell goods at the local marketplace, when you came into the market, if you were a farmer or, or a merchant and you were coming to sell things, you would enter the marketplace and right there would be a little place to offer sacrifice might be to the Roman emperor, might be to the local god or goddess. And to most of the people of the city, it was just something you did. Yeah, you want to sell here? Well, well, you've got to stop and just offer this, and then we'll let you in. It's no big deal. You don't really even have to mean it. And there was so much pressure on the Christians. Just give in a little bit. It's really no big deal. It's just what you have to do to get by. Could you imagine this at Wegmans? Before you go in? Oh yeah, just just offer a couple coins to the pagan god or goddess of whatever. But this was their life and they struggled with this. How do I make a living if I can't even walk into the market? So I'll just do this just to give in a little bit. Sometimes it was just struggling with old or worldly ways of thinking that carried over into the church. We know some of the early churches, they, they lived in kind of an honor and shame-based culture. You, you had almost like a caste system. You were sort of ranked based on how important you were. That's the world they lived in. But then some churches were giving people special seats, and we'd reserve the front of the church for the most important people. There you go, Chris, you're most important. We reserve that, and those that aren't important, they've got to sit way in the back. Hey, you guys in the back. Here you go. We love you. These things had, but, but could you imagine coming to the church? Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, you can't sit here. You're not a merchant. You're, you're not wealthy or you're not important enough. You're, your seat's back there. You're a slave. You need to sit back there. And these things were in the churches. Sometimes it was just people in the church wanting to get their way. I just want what's most important to me to be reflected in the church. So everybody else has to change to fit that. 
Constantly, the early church, just like we are today, were pressured to mix Christianity with modern, so-called in their day, ideas and mix them together into something new and different. One of the ways this happened was a form of teaching known as Gnosticism. It was a modern philosophy that taught that all matter, all physical stuff is evil, only the spiritual stuff is true and real. And so this teaching was creeping in and being mixed with Christianity and saying, well, Jesus wasn't really fully human. Didn't really become flesh because that would be evil and wrong. He was just sort of this spiritual savior. Another way it was coming into the church was saying, well, it doesn't really matter what you do in your flesh. It doesn't really matter what you do with your physical body. Go out and sin, do whatever you want, be free and be happy. Because the physical world isn't really real anyway. All that matters is spiritual world. We see Paul writing against this in the book of Colossians, saying, wait a minute, remember who Jesus really is, come back to the truth. So the early church was struggling with these things. How do they hold on to their faith, even when they're persecuted, struggling, unable to participate in local politics or society or the culture or even the economics? And sometimes they were even outright persecuted and put to death. Can you imagine the pressure? Hey, just change what you believe a little bit. And if you don't, you could die. That's pressure. So what do we do about this? I don't think today in our world, in our culture, at least in in our American culture, that the struggle is change or die. Somebody's going to kill you. But there's this pressure, change or you won't be relevant. Change or you'll be hateful or a bigot. Give in or we're not going to come to your church. We need to understand there must be a separation between us and the culture. We cannot just be like our world in order to win the world. If Jesus is the focal point of all of scripture, I want, to, I want you to see him as the focal point of this subject. Specifically, think about the cross. The Christian cross is a picture of something so powerful. It is the truth that the sinful world is in rebellion against God. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross. Crime had been done. Sin had been done. There was a price to be paid. There was a judgment to be given. And the judgment was death. As we look at the cross, we can't just say, well, the world's fine. Everything's okay. If everything was okay, why did Jesus go to the cross? Some people say, oh, it's just an act of love. It's just a demonstration of love. That is garbage. You go to the word, you go to the Old Testament, blood had to be shed to pay for sin. God had set it up for thousands of years so that when we came to the cross, we would know what was going on. Jesus Christ was dying as a payment for our sin. The cross also shows that there's salvation. God doesn't come to us and say, well, just fix yourself up a little bit more. Just be a little bit better and then I'll love you and accept you. The cross says you can't do it on your own. You couldn't have fixed yourself up. So Jesus died in our place. And then, of course, the cross leads right into the resurrection. We are given new life in Jesus Christ. 
Believing in the truth of the cross and the resurrection means that as we look at this world, we have to understand as Christians, we are called to be different. We can't just go on thinking the way we used to think. We can't just give in to the ways of the world in order to reach the world. We are called to be image bearers of the cross of Jesus Christ, proclaimers of the cross of Jesus Christ. I want to give you a couple examples from the epistles of where we see this. There's so many, but so I'm just picking a couple here. One of my favorites is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is one I would encourage you to memorize. It's so powerful. Paul, after spending 11 chapters talking about the gospel, what it is, what it means, what it means to the Gentiles, what it means to the Jews, how it makes us righteous apart from anything that we can do, he gets to chapter 12 and he says, therefore, because all of this is true, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. He says, look at your life and think about it completely different. Think about it as a sacrifice being offered on an altar to God. It is no longer yours. It has been given away to somebody else, to the God who sent his son to die in your place and rise from the dead to save you. See all of your life as an act of worship, set apart and holy. But Paul knows that this view that he's saying in verse 1 is at odds with the world. And so he goes right into verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He comes to us and says, you think this way because you live in this world. Your culture thinks this way. You've absorbed certain things as normal and natural and just the way it is. And he says, you must allow the gospel to change all of that. Be transformed. Do not conform to the ways of this world. And then he says, when we do that, when we do that, we'll be able to look at what God says and say, I get it. This is true and it is right. Which means on the flip side, as the world listens to the word of God, they are going to hear it. As they listen to the gospel, as they see your life as a Christian, they're going to look at you and go, that doesn't make any sense. Because we are called to be different. This is Paul's application, I believe, of Jesus' prayer in the upper room in John 17. He says, think differently, be transformed. Let me give you one more example. First John chapter two, John writes, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of the, uh, the will of God lives forever. Do you see that? in but not of the world. It's expressed in that phrase, do not love the world or anything in it. Now, he's not saying don't act in loving ways. A lot of Christians get this wrong. Well, we're not called to love the world, so I hate the world and I'm going to let them know it. When he says, do not love the world, he's saying, don't let the things of the world take priority in your life. Don't let it set the ultimate things of value in your life. Don't let the things of the world dictate your joy or your wisdom or your focus. Don't let them take up the throne room of your heart. 
In fact, he says it so strongly, if anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. Because the truth is, if, if our own self or the ways of the world are on the throne room of our heart, then God's not. And that is God's seat. There's this huge pressure from the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These are things that are just cultural forces, ideas in the world. Sin just saying, well, this makes sense. This will make you happy. Give into these things. And it puts constant pressure on us. But John gives them perspective. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. John writes out of love. Love for his fellow believers. And he says to them, I love you, so I want you to think and live and act differently. Don't be like the world. These are just two quick examples. It happens over and over and over again in the New Testament letters. But I want us to understand that we are called to be different. We are here in this world. We're not called to go out and live as hermits. We are here. But we are called to be different. So how? How do we do this? I want to introduce you to a phrase, and I want to explain it. Incarnational living. Incarnational living. To understand this, obviously, we need to understand the word incarnation. Incarnation means something taking on flesh, becoming physical, becoming flesh. And specifically, we're talking about Jesus' birth into the world. In John chapter 1, he starts out by saying, in the, word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So he establishes, he's talking about Jesus here, he establishes Jesus is God. Then he goes on in verse 14, the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. This eternal God, co-equal in the mystery of the Trinity with God the Father, he takes on flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus was born in that manger, he didn't alter his deity. He didn't become less divine. He didn't add human sinfulness to his righteousness of his deity. He was still 100% God. But he took on flesh and was born among us. That's the Christmas story. This is what we celebrate every single year. And as he did this, he lived and ate and walked and spoke with people just like you and me so that they could see God with flesh on him. And John writes, we beheld his glory. This is the incarnation of Christ. Eternal, unchanging holy truth being lived out and demonstrated in the messiness of this world. And I love this concept of incarnational living. Because there's a difference between incarnational living and syncretism. Syncretism says, take what you believe and mix it with the world. Incarnation says, hold on to what you believe and live it in this world. Do you see the difference? One changes the message and loses it. The other one holds on to it with white-knuckled faith and lives it out in a world that says, you're a fool for this. Paul gives an example of this in 1 Corinthians. 
He talks about his own ministry to them. He says, As, uh, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul says, guys, do you remember what I talked to you about? I told you the eternal truth of God, the unchanging gospel. That's what he preached, and that's what he taught. But then look at chapter 9. He says this, Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like the Jews to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am free from God's law and am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Wait a minute, Paul, you're contradicting yourself. On the one hand, you're saying, I resolve to know nothing but the gospel, and I've only taught you the gospel, the unchanging truth of God, and now you're saying, well, I've become all things to all people. Which is it, Paul? It's both. That's the beauty of incarnational living, holding on to an unchanging truth and living it out and proclaiming it and demonstrating it in a changing world. This idea is applied again and again throughout the New Testament letters. They struggled. Guys, if if you struggle living out your faith in this world, you are not alone. Every other Christian in this world, every other Christian in churches around the world, every other Christian throughout the history of the church struggles living out their faith in a world that does not accept what we believe. And we have clear direction from the New Testament. Hold on to truth. Live it out in your world where you are. We desperately need to hear this today. Do not change the truth. The truth does not change with cultures. It does not change with history or time. It does not change based on whether you're in the third world or the first world, a poor country or a rich country. The truth never changes. And so we need to live out the unchanging truth as we look at our culture and seek to understand ways to communicate with the culture. There's one more idea we need to understand that goes along with this. We are called to be separate, yet we are sent into this world. So many Christians answer the question of what's our relationship with the world by saying, well, there are enemies. And yes, there are passages we can talk about enemies. Okay, but, but then we say, well, then our mission is to call out the world and everything wrong with the world, and our mission is to hate the world and judge the world. There's whole churches and whole traditions that are all based around talking about how bad the world is. They've got the separate part, but they've lost the sent into part. Then there are other churches that say, well, we're in this world, so let's change everything about us, and they give in a syncretism, and they mix the gospel with the ideas of the world, and, and they've lost the separate under the guise of being sent into. We have a mission 
to be separate yet sent into. In Jesus' prayer in John 17, he specifically says that he is sending the disciples into the world. This is what the Great Commission is all about. So what does this look like? How are we to be separate yet sent into? In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul gives his summary statement for the book of Romans. And it's so powerful, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. As someone who loves to study the word of God and go deep into the word of God, I love this passage because it brings up all these things from the book of Romans and how powerful it is. But there's another thing that's powerful here. The Roman culture. The Roman culture said, believe whatever you want to believe. As long as you also believe these things, you can add it on to what you already believe. It doesn't really matter. Find whatever makes you happy. Worship this God. Worship this goddess. As long as you also worship the emperor sometimes, we're okay with it. And Paul writes right at the beginning of his letter, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who believes. Man, this was not acceptable in his world. He understood that he had a mission in the world to proclaim the gospel. And he writes this letter of Romans to Christians in the world's most powerful, most modern contemporary city of their day with all of this pressure to find righteousness and all of these things. And he says, no, it's all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another phrase that's used of how to be separate yet sent into is this idea of shining as light. Jesus talks about we are a city on a hill and you can't hide that. We are called to shine out the light of the gospel in this world. Paul writes this in Ephesians 5.8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. In our mission, we need to receive the gospel, the truth, accept it. But we've got to also live it. It's not enough to gather on Sundays and talk about these things and in Bible studies. It must transform our day-to-day lives so that our whole reason for living out there is to be demonstrators of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It changes everything about us. And one of the things this will lead to is suffering. Many places in the New Testament, especially in the letters, tell us that those who believe in Jesus Christ and live for him will suffer. We struggle with this because we live in a culture that is so prone to avoiding suffering at all cost. Don't suffer. Find whatever you can to get out of suffering. Listen to the words of Peter in 1 Peter. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice Inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. As we live out the gospel in this world, friends, those of you trusting in Jesus Christ, be ready to suffer. I'm not saying run after it. Hey, persecute me. Bring it on. I'm showing Jesus. I'm saying be ready for it. And don't run from it or change what you believe when it happens. It is a natural part of the gospel of Jesus Christ interacting with this world. James says it in another place. In his letter, in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. 
God has a purpose in your suffering. Hold on to the truth of the gospel. Don't rewrite it or change it to alleviate the suffering. God has a purpose for you. So we are sent on a mission in this world to proclaim the gospel, to shine forth the truth of the gospel and how we live, how we treat people, how we treat one another. And we must be prepared to suffer. We're called to be different over and over. And we talked about that last week. We are called to be different. And the gospel changes our relationship with the world. Friends, be careful as you think about the culture and the world out there. If we just see them as enemies to be conquered, we're missing the point. We need to be like doctors, seeing them as people that are hurting and dying and need to be saved. We need to see them as people that are lost and need to be found. We need to see them as people headed in the wrong direction that need to be pointed in the right direction to Jesus Christ. Their own sin and the devil at work in the world is the enemy. The world are people that God loves and we have a mission to take the gospel to them. I was so shocked that day walking out of that cathedral. I'm not one for like spiritual feelings, but that was one time in my life, there was something about that moment that was just so oppressive. It was like evil was palpable. Something within the core of my being said, this is so wrong to mix the gospel with this Mayan pagan practice. Christianity trusts in Jesus Christ for our salvation and says that when we die, we either go to heaven or hell. And here they're saying, well, let's worship, pray to these people that are dead, these dead ancestors, these dead kings. In one city, they put skulls and they march them down the streets. And they pray to that. I think it was like a Mayan king. One of the skulls. He probably didn't have three. But you know what's interesting? See, the Catholic Church has accepted this idea of people that have died that we pray to as saints. It's not in Scripture. It's not. With all due respect and love to those in the Catholic Church, that is not the teaching of the Word of God. It is a change. It is a distortion of the Word of God that opened the door for this pagan practice to come in and be mixed with the gospel. And so already they were in a dangerous place because they had let go and slipped in their understanding and belief in the unchanging truth of the Word of God and allowed them unknowingly, or maybe knowingly, to slip into mixing the gospel with something that was not gospel at all. What about us? What would Paul think if he walked into our church today? If he walked into a church or many churches across the American landscape and listened, what would he think? What would James say? What would John write? What letters would they send to us of be careful with these things in your culture? I think one of the things they would say is reject the gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity that is so rampant in the American churches. This idea that God's pure plan for you is to always be happy, always be wealthy, Always be prosperous is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet it is taking hold in churches across our world, especially in American churches. 
I think one thing that would be called out is the gospel of self-improvement. That Jesus is there to help you be a better version of yourself. One author describes this as moral therapeutic deism. God's just there as your therapy to help you feel better. I think another thing they would call out as a synchronistic mixing with the gospel is the mix of American politics with the gospel of Jesus Christ. As if somehow being a Christian means being part of one political party and therefore unconditionally supporting or calling people Christian who are clearly not Christian at all simply because they align with you politically. It is rampant in the American church. Another thing I think we'd be challenged with is giving into contemporary pressures to change the eternal, unchanging truth of the Word of God. Over the past hundred years, the church felt this through the liberal church movement. Take out all reference to miracles. Just, just teach them as moral stories. Now, the current struggle is about sexuality and gender. God's word is abundantly clear. God created human sexuality and human gender according to his design and his definition. And it is not something we can redefine to suit our contemporary needs. And I'll tell you, when I gather with other pastors, it is a constant subject. What is your church doing about this? And there's a constant pressure I've had people say, if you keep teaching this and preaching this, one day you could go to jail. Then I would go to jail. Because I believe that the word of God does not change. And I can't change it just to fit my world. Come what may. And it's so subtle well, maybe those people would be more welcome in our church if we stop talking about this or we use different terminology and we love them. We do and we should. But we cannot change the unchanging word of God. Through all of this, understand that we are called to be in but not of this world. We are called to incarnational living. Take the eternal truth of God, live it in this changing culture and live this out on mission to preach and teach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that so desperately needs it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you. I think of that last song we sung. Oh Lord, I need you. Daily, every hour, I need you. It's so easy and so tempting to fall back on what we know, what we understand, what's normal and natural, or what is a pressure in our world to give in to things. And yet over and over again in the New Testament with people just like us struggling to live out their faith, you called them to be different. You called them to be missionaries sent into the world, holding on to the truth of the gospel, living this out in their lives and proclaiming it. And God, I pray that you would forgive us in the church today for the ways that we have mixed the ways of this world with the unchanging truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, so often, the gospel of Jesus Christ gets lost. And we begin to preach a gospel of modernity, a gospel of Americanism, a gospel of prosperity, but it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
and only the gospel of your son Jesus who died in the cro- on the cross in our place and rose again. Only that good news can save anyone. So help us, Father. I believe my brothers and sisters here take this seriously. Help us to live this out, to proclaim this, to hold on to the truth, to be prepared when the world doesn't accept it and suffering comes. Help us no matter what to preach and teach and display the gospel of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.